Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe. We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011. You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman. It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. <laughs> you see what, I, <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice. We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpersonnage. Man, I love that movie. We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninochka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles. A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series. Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn. For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with the Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises. Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape. And for our David Mamet Wright's series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross. Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them. Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. 
It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. In order to really do this, uh, I have to go back uh, just, a, just a little bit uh, in our Slack chat. Mm. I have to go back and, and read a, one of your posts. Oh, dear. You say... Per all the discussions I've been following, Spotlight is likely going to be getting a Best Picture nom, so I'll be seeing it in theaters, most likely. Honestly, you're the only person I've heard say it's bad. It has ridiculously high scores on RT and Metacritic. Not that I don't believe you, but... And then you end (laughs) on an ellipsis. Yeah, I just kind of let it hang there, didn't I? Remarkably passive-aggressive response to my review. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I did see Spotlight. It was, as you recall, uh, from last week, it was my birthday. Happy, right. th- happy Thanksgiving, by the way. we got to jump from holiday to holiday. Yes. For all our American listeners out there, yeah. happy Thanksgiving. Yes. For so, everyone else in the world, happy Thursday. You're <laughs> yeah, we're shutting up now. <laughs> Here's to the end of November. Yes. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I saw Spotlight, and it was I was very excited about this movie. And, I know. And now I'm pretty excited for you to see it, because I, I am totally willing to believe that, I am, uh, that my views are a bit askew. This is a movie with some great actors and a crummy script. And it's a, it is what I would like to call uh, a one-trick pony. They, they do... Uh, uh, research, and that's pretty much all they do, and they don't even make it look all that sexy. It's all about you know documents, and uh, it's a really sensitive story. It's this idea, or it's this, it's telling the true story of the the um, uh, archdiocese uh, in Boston and uh, the fall of the cardinal around the um, sex abuse scandals. And uh, it obviously stars some incredible people. Uh, Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Leif Scriber. Uh, He was, in my view, uh, the highlight of the film Leif Scriber. Uh, Everybody else was great. He was the highlight. Uh, Mark Ruffalo was the the real low point. Um, Not because he... he, Not because of any other reason than I think they just came up with a character that does not fit his his demeanor and his... uh, physicality and his voice in particular it's just tough to watch i never got into it real snoozer i i found myself wandering many times i wonder if you would like truth because it's funny because i've heard how um how untruthful i don't don't know if untruthful is the right word but how um skewed that one is as far as the way that they they chose to tell that story Mm -hmm. versus this one i've heard that they really kind of told this in the in the exact right way so i'm curious um if you see truth kind of what your perception would be of that as compared to this okay and that brings up a really good question uh, you know and insofar as we have talked a number of times about how to handle these biographical stories or these true stories right 
And, and, and what do you do uh, when you are left in a position to take a story that may be interesting when you read it in the newspaper, but when you dramatize it is pretty boring? And, it, you know, how do you take that and actually make it a, something, a story that is worth seeing in the theater? Uh, and that, I think, is the problem that Spotlight runs into, is that it is an incredible story um, that when you throw all these great actors at the screen and tell them to act it out, it becomes something that is that is less interesting. But part of the problem is, and I, I hate the, the comparison to, um, you know, All the President's Men, although I know we've had a, a couple of our listeners write in and say they didn't really get into it as much as we did, certainly. I am uh, I, I'm a big fan of that film. I think uh, uh, Hoffman and Redford are, are terrific. Um, I think one of the things that, that makes that film stand out is that it's telling a complicated story through two people, right? We, we're through two eyes. And in Spotlight, we have like six. Uh, it is uh, just the reporters alone. We have, uh, we go from two to four, which, um, which adds a degree of complication uh, to it. We're following too many people to, I think, develop any real connection with, uh, with who the actors or who the actors are portraying. And that's a real challenge over the course of two hours, I think. Maybe it would have been better as a series, like a Netflix series. Um, I'm with you on truth, and I haven't seen it yet. I'm very excited to see it uh, for that very same reason. And I wonder if, if um, you know, it, it looks to me like they are really focusing on Kate Blanchett and Robert Redford's um, uh, characters as the as the sort of eyes through which we're seeing the story, and may, might make it a little bit easier to understand the drama of it. Yeah, and I know that the that um, McCarthy, who directed Spotlight, really. Um, purposefully avoided singling out like one or two of the reporters and kind of uh, reworking the truth to focus and to make, to make a couple of them seem like the heroes. He really wanted it to kind of feel like a team effort. And that was kind of a big part of it. Um, even though it didn't necessarily give anybody um, as much of that uh, heroic bent in the story. Um, so yeah, it's interesting that he chose to go that way to make it feel more truthful. But as far as uh, what you have seen, it just isn't coming across that way. So I, I'm really curious to see that one. I need to, I need to get out and see that sometime soon so we can chat more about it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to run out this week and, and grab during the holiday week, I'm going to grab truth and, and, uh, I, because, you know, I, I love journalism movies and that's one of the reasons I, I felt sort of personally affronted yeah. By the fact that I did not like this, I wanted to like it a lot, but it leads me to it. my next uh, my next uh, response. Okay, all right, uh, and it is about trailers. Okay, okay, because this was this was uh, the good Steve Sarmento's uh, uh, once in Future King. He says trailers build expectations that the films can't live up to. Better to walk in blind and be surprised. Uh, and uh, Stephen Smart, uh, trailers are adverts. Adverts. I avoid trailers, or at least I don't seek them out. One or two will find me, of course. I, I mean, the trailer for Spectre was on for the breakfast news, for crying out loud. That's how big Bond is in the UK. Okay, so we talk about trailers every single week. Right. And here are two people who say, we hate trailers. We don't want to do trailers. I disagree with them. I actually love trailers, and I think the reason I love them is because I'm looking for my, they They have become my white whale. And the reason I, in Spotlight in particular... When I see a trailer that's great, that I love, and I find myself really attracted to that story, and I'm really looking forward to the movie, and I see the movie, and it is also great, it makes the trailer experience that much better. 
I like, I love it when the pair of the mini art form of making this advertisement for the film matches up with my expectations of, of the success of the film. That's why I watch trailers, not to be spoiled, not to be, I mean, I, I, I watch trailers because I love, it's like the, the jelly that has to go with the peanut butter and the bread. (laughs) What do you, what do you think? Am I, I, you know, I, I love trailers too. Um, I love just kind of the, the tease that they do. I mean, I think that there is more of an art form to finding the right way to tell a trailer Mm -hmm. than there is an art necessarily of trailers. I think what I really enjoy about trailers is when they put a trailer out and it gives me a great tease of the film and I have a good sense of it. And yeah, like you, when I like the film too, that's, that's just an even bigger win. The thing that does get me frustrated with trailers is when they either tell too much of the story and I feel like I've actually seen the film mm-hmm. or when they keep putting trailers out and it's like i feel like like star wars is a perfect example i actually still have not watched the most recent star wars i've only seen the initial teaser of the star wars trailers um uh and i and i really like i I shouldn't say the initial i I saw the first trailer i saw the teaser and the first trailer um i haven't seen the most recent trailer that came out that was a tv that was just a tv trailer right you haven't no, no, no. are you saying you haven't seen the big feature trailer i haven't seen the big feature trailer cuz they were calling everything leading up to the feature trailer was a teaser which i think is a a misnomer i think it's a misnomer too cuz the 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 last teaser was full trailer length yes you know i and, think it's silly to call that a teaser and the feature trailer uh it doesn't give us anything more than the teaser trailer did it gives us some new images but it, it doesn't i think this is an example of a really good trailer trailer that it 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 shows you enough of the film to really want to see all of that but bigger but it doesn't give away any of the story but here's the question though did you need that or was the initial last teaser was that enough like for me i was like that was what i needed out of the trailer it, it got me sold on the movie and everything i didn't need them to keep pumping trailer after trailer because then there was the the official trailer then there's the international trailer then there's a gazillion tv spots and i've just ended up skipping them all um because you know i had my fill i'm like i'm excited for star wars i don't need them to keep kind of pumping me with it i'll watch all those um well i'll see the film and then if i want to watch them i'll watch them yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think that's, that is a failure of—it um, it ends up being a, a failure of sort of movie marketing, and, and I know that I'm, I'm uh, alone in this <laughs> because uh, I, I think that movie marketers would say just the opposite. I also think that Star Wars is unique. They didn't need probably to have multiple trailers to get people excited about this because uh, enough people are excited about a single trailer. I mean, they just release a poster. They probably could have gotten away with um, sort of the, the follow-on word of mouth as a result that, that they, you know, the thing would have been blown up anyway. Um, I, I think that I, I, it makes me sad, the sort of trend that we're, uh, that we're on, the trend line we're on of just every movie gets multiple teasers, multiple trailers. That's a, I think that's really sad. I think just a, a single good trailer and putting it in the right places in the right rotation, um, you know, it makes for a nice package. So yeah, I it agree. does bum me out. Yeah. The other thing that bums me out, and this is, and I'll, I'll end on my rant on this, um, the uh, I think it was Wired uh, posted an article on uh, that, and the headline was "You will not live to see the last Star Wars movie." Right. I saw Did that. you see that? Yeah. 
I that made me so sad. Yeah. Am I? Am I? I'm no, my sort it's, of wanderings. No, I, I think that's kind of what happens when a big conglomerate like Disney ends up uh, taking the reins. Is they feel that it's it, it, i mean it becomes a james bond sort of thing where they want it to be now just a franchise that can spin in all sorts of different directions and just can kind of keep living on in eternity i think that's a very interesting way to uh take it i think i don't know i i, I have you know yin yang feelings about that i i I miss the days of just having kind of even just the original trilogy as that was Star Wars for me. You know, mm-hmm. that that was kind of a perfect little package of Star Wars to have in my life. Um, the other side of me is just thrilled that, hey, it's this never-ending uh, galaxy of stories that they can kind of keep spinning in all sorts of different yarns, whether it's a political thriller or a heist film or just a straight-up uh, space opera action film or whatever they can they they have a whole universe that they can kind of do interesting stories with and i think that's very exciting i do too and and this is the first time that i've ever uh been left to question my own mortality that's all i'm saying I do love the, the two things about the article. If you haven't seen it in Wired.com, uh, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. The the uh, It's not really an infographic, but the art to go along with it is fantastic. It's a really detailed um, uh, sort of Futurama style, um, uh, uh like a giant poster of all of the uh, uh, all of the artifacts and fetish items of Star Wars and characters. They've got C three PO weirdly in an aliens uh, loader, um, but they uh, they the Hulk is in there. The Raiders of the Lost Ark is in there, but they you can't really see it in, unless you. Uh, roll this loop over the entire graphic. They have a loop there, and you can swing your mouse over and look at all the detail in this animation. It's really, really cool. And I'm not going to lie to you in this uh, this paragraph. 2012, uh, even then it was pretty clear Lucasfilm was going to make more Star Wars movies. I just have this very simple idea, John Knoll says, about rebel spies in the opening crawl of A New Hope who plan to steal, who steal the plans for the Death Star. Kennedy got Knoll's reference, of course. It's the beginning of the movie. In the ribbon of text that sets the scene, rebel spies manage to steal secret plans to the Empire's ultimate weapon, the Death Star. That's a very good idea, John, Kennedy said. So, green light. That's how you get to make a Star Wars movie. And I wow. found myself really excited about that movie, too. Oh, I would want to see that movie. And I hope it stars the entire cast from Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> well, that one's, you know, it's... I know. Not too far away. I know. I, I'm, I'm excited about that. I'm a fanboy. All right, I'm enough out of me. <laughs> Shall we tell the people where we're from? Where are we from? Is the next reel on Rashpixel FM. Dot everybody. Dot everybody. <laughs> We're recording this in the morning, and things just aren't running the same way they usually do. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hola. <laughs> and we spoil movies tonight on the show. A listener has spoken tonight. Our benefactor has brought us some international flair with Louise Buñuel's 1961 film Viridiana. 
Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you've ever had your faith tested and wound up playing poker in a Spanish dive, man, are you not alone. So hit up The Next Reel's Instagram, hashtag PonyPrize, hashtag GuessTheMovie challenge and for that we cross the great big sea to our dear friend steven smart for a very big and consequential update this week hey guys well this week we had lots of fantastic guesses but no winner only the fourth time that that's happened this week's movie was the accidental tourist from 1988, directed by Lawrence Kasdan, based on the book by Anne Tyler, it starred William Hurt, Kathleen Turner and Gina Davis. As always, a new challenge starts Friday, so thanks guys, and see you later. Andy, it's time. Let's do trailers. Uh, I don't know, I want to call this what, uh, Die Hard 7? <laughs> this is uh, this is another movie. Uh, we talked last week about how excited I was about uh, Gods of Egypt because it was the perfect movie to get to to watch on your birthday when you get a free pass for taste. This seems to be another one directed by Stephen Miller, re- written by Max Adams and Umer Alim, stars Bruce Willis, uh, Gina Carano, Kellen Lutz, and it looks exactly like the most recent Die Hard film where Bruce Willis and his family uh, are embroiled in some sort of, of international espionage. In this case, a former CIA operative is kidnapped by a group a group of terrorists. When his son learns there is no plan for his father to be saved, he launches his own rescue operation. So his son is coming to rescue Bruce instead of Bruce coming to rescue his son. Mm. Other than that, it's lots of guns and lots of action and lots of diving and uh, some some pretty exciting one-liners that, and, and as a result, I think the film is relatively substance-free, again, based on the trailer. <laughs> And uh, should be a good birthday movie. Were you excited about this at all? <laughs> I was not. <laughs> this looked like a straight-to-video movie. It like, did. And I have a feeling it's going to be, because it's opening op- opposite Star Wars. So I have a feeling it's just oh, going to get... Oh, dear. And, that's... And a dump. But uh, and, and like it was, I was excited when I saw Bruce Willis, but then it becomes clear that he's kind of a, a supporting character in this, and Kellen Lutz is really the protagonist. And I was like, who is this Kellen Lutz guy? I mean, mm-hmm. I don't really know. I know he's been in the Twilight movies. This is definitely a Kellen and... Lutz vehicle, as they yeah. say. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I was like, eh, okay. And then it was like, it wasn't from Lionsgate. It was, I can't remember what it said. It was it was a, a Lionsgate... Uh, like subsidiary it's, or something. Yeah, like it sounded like their their direct uh direct to video spin-off. And yeah. I just can't remember what that was called, but uh I I have seen uh, no other films from Stephen Miller, uh, the uh, writer director. I, I he's done a bunch of uh, other horror films. Uh I don't know uh much of Max Adams. Um though uh, uh, he has, I think, more um, uh, more credit to his uh, CV. He did Heist uh, back in, er, in 2015. Um, like I say that as if it was so long ago, but it opens uh, <laughs> no, it opened November 13, uh, 2015. But it has, uh, you know, that was uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Dave Batista, and De Niro. And uh, I, you know, I haven't seen it. I don't know much about it. That's another one that I think went straight to video. Yeah, it's sad. 
So anyhow, these are movies that got made, and I feel like, again, as birthday movies, uh, they are perfect fare. It, I, I don't agree. I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> I don't <laughs> Are you going to get all passive-aggressive <laughs> again, right. Andy? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't disagree. I mean, this does look like the sort of film that I could very easily put on late at night and just lay there and watch it and not fall asleep because it's, it's bad enough that I would still enjoy it. You know, this year for our guilty pleasure, this coming year for our guilty pleasure pick, we should pick movies that we haven't seen but just know are going to be guilty pleasures. <laughs> like Extraction. Like Extraction. It, uh, <laughs> opens, it opens potentially directly to video December 18th, 2015. So uh, when you're done with Star Wars um, and you are, are down to thinking about whether or not you want to see Extraction or Star Wars again, probably see Star Wars again. <laughs> And then much later, see Extraction on your birthday. Yes. That's it. There you go. Well, I'm very excited about my trailer. <laughs> <laughs> it's got Melissa McCarthy. It's got Kristen Bell. It's got Girl Scouts. <laughs> it's got <laughs> Peter Dinklage, Kathy Bates. It's It looks like an R-rated like Girl Scout comedy. And... Who doesn't I just, want that? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy just, uh, I mean, I, I talk about every trailer that rolls around with her in it, I swear. Uh, Spy was Spy was one of my uh, favorites of this year. I just I couldn't stop laughing with that film. This looks uh, just just so funny. It's this uh, this woman, a titan of industry. Uh, she's sent to prison after she's caught for insider trading. That's Melissa McCarthy's character. And when she emerges ready to rebrand herself as America's latest sweetheart, not everyone she screwed over is so quick to forgive and forget. Uh, as IMDb's synopsis says, uh, Kristen Bell is her assistant who um, ends up taking her in when she gets out of prison. And along with her daughter, um, kind of convinces her to help out with the, her daughter's uh, little, I think they call them dandelions, her little dandelion troop in the cookie fundraiser. And and as a titan of industry, she's just shocked at how pathetic it all is. And so she takes on this challenge of turning this little, this little dandelion troop into a cookie selling machine. And it just looks so funny. Uh, the conversations that Melissa McCarthy has that are just so completely inappropriate with these young girls about uh, girl on girl action, <laughs> things like that. The street just fight so is is a riot. The street fight, and then the the last little sweater bit in the trailer. Yeah, I just I really just couldn't stop laughing through this trailer. Melissa McCarthy is just one of those people who knows what she can do with comedy and um paired with her husband ben falcone who's uh, directing this one um I, I think that they have just kind of tapped into a great way to kind of put uh put stories together for her and i really enjoy watching what they end up doing on screen me too I think it looks hysterical. I think they uh, uh, and and I didn't see Spy, but you had some good things to say about that one as well. Um, so good, yeah, so I, funny. I, I know I need to see it now that it's out to rent. I need to grab it. But um, but this one to me, it brings me that same uh, sort of gut wrenching laughter as when I saw and and I I don't say this about the the actual film the anchorman 2 anchorman 2 the legend continues uh the trailer was riotously funny because watching the they were all in the rv and they had the the bowling ball and a a, a 
like a a scorpion and some like lots of crazy knives and it was one of the most hysterical things when he says cruise control means it doesn't mean that the car the rv is driving itself and then it wrecks and it does this incredibly long kind of roll and everybody gets injured and the setup was perfect and it was great slapstick and it was perfect amount of injury and i was like in in spit up laughter i had that same experience with this trailer uh leading up to the the fight when she takes over it's this whole idea of of um what's her name who actually went to jail for insider training really famous blonde oh the uh the the empire you know what i'm saying yeah she makes wreaths yeah she's she makes wreaths and stuff Uh, (laughs) clearly we're up on her multi-godzillionaire and to the, the idea of seeing her in a street fight uh with some girl scouts was just too much that there is brownie turf is just too much for me i thought it was great totally disrespectful it was it was pretty brilliant yeah. what do we say when uh when <laughs> we, somebody does one of our cookies buy our cookies or i'll kill you <laughs> <laughs> oh so uh, good so martha stewart is who martha stewart right yeah. <laughs> martha stewart of wreaths <laughs> wreaths and cooking and cooking that's what we remember of her so anyway, this opens April. Uh, it looks like April eighth, twenty sixteen. So I'll be there to watch this one. Faux show, faux show. Pete, Andy, I never want you to leave this house. Diego Luis Contreras, thank you so much for this recommendation of Viridiana 1961 uh, from Luis Buñuel. Uh, you guys went through uh, kind of a roundabout to land on this movie. Uh, we how did. That, how yeah. did you come to it? Diego really wanted us to talk about a, a film from Spain, and he initially threw out a bunch of names, a bunch of titles of films that he wanted us to look at. Uh, La Torre de los Siete uh, Torobados, The Tower of the Seven Hunchbacks, El Verdugo, El Bosque Animado, El Crack, Calle Mayor, and Viridiana. Those were all titles that he kind of threw our way. Um, and unfortunately, just none of these, except for Viridiana, are available in the U.S. There, I, I could not find in any way any sort of an English dub that had been released over here, which is really unfortunate. It just, it just goes to show how many films are out there in the world that are just not accessible to people worldwide. And it's kind of frustrating because some of these really sounded interesting. The Tower of the Seven Hunchbacks, um, he said it's a mix of suspense, terror, and Spanish folk from 1944 and kind of the post-war Spain, which sounded really interesting. And it looked, from some of the stills that he sent our way, looked pretty fascinating. They all sounded like really interesting films. And, um, you know, I just it's one of those things where I wish that there were ways for people to access more international cinema in different parts of the world. But unfortunately, uh, we just aren't in that place right now. Um, Viridiana is available uh, through Criterion Collection on their DVD and probably Hulu and and yeah, iTunes, that's how, et cetera, that's how et I watched it. Yeah. Yeah. And luckily, Luis Buñuel is um, a, a bit of an international name, and that is probably why he ended up, uh, some of his films ended up getting picked up um, by the Criterion Collection so that they could uh, be seen more easily. So it's, yeah, it's kind of unfortunate um, that's the case. But, uh, you know, it still is thrilling that we did get to watch this one. It is, and it surprised me. 
Yeah. Did it surprise you at all? You had not seen this, obviously, going into I, it. I had not. I had I had seen very few Luis Buñuel films. In fact, when he mentioned it, I, I it was one of those. He's one of those directors where I, I actually felt like I had seen a lot more of his films than I had seen. I looked at his uh, his um, filmography and realized. Gosh, I have heard so much talk of so many of his films, but I realized all I had actually seen were Un Chien Andalou, his first short film that he made, which is pretty extraordinary and uh, definitely worth checking out if you're able to look at it. It's very surreal. He did it with the help of Salvador Dali, if that kind of gives you any sense as to what to expect. Really, really fascinating film. And uh, Land Without Bread is the other one, which is a documentary short that he made. And um, uh, also called Los, Las Urdes, uh, filmed in uh, a region of uh, Spain called Las Urdes. Very kind of uh, funny a mockumentary is really kind of what that is. Those were the only things I had seen. I, I feel like maybe in film class I had seen L'Age d'Or, one of his, or actually his first feature, but I really can't remember at all. So this really was, as far as I think um the first feature Luis Buñuel film that I had actually seen and uh, I'm definitely glad that I ended up watching this one I was was nervous going into watching this film because Un Chien Andalou was also the only Buñuel film that I had ever seen and uh that was uh as a taste of and I saw it very young and so as a taste of surrealist uh, filmmaking and the eyeball and all that 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 more than anything else introduced me to the pixies um and uh, <laughs> which which I adore and but but I haven't seen anything else and so I thought I was worried going into this film to Veridiana that it was going to be an hour and a half of Unchien Andalou and I thought I don't know if I can handle that <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't know if if that's if my brain can handle that it's going to be like a, you know it's going to be a little bit of a clockwork orange for me and and so um I am I I have to say incredibly relieved uh, as a result of sitting down to watch this movie, I really liked it. I really liked it. I think that is it's fascinating to me just how controversial the film was at the time. Uh, the fact that it was it was mildly censored by the Spanish film board and had to be smuggled out to France to make sure that the film board would not see the final edit uh, of the film before it could be submitted to Cannes, I find hysterical. Um, I, I think it is a really uh, uh, deliciously subversive around uh, organized religion. And in my reading uh, on Louise Bunuel and, and his history, I think it really you know, coming at toward the end of his career, I think it it is is a wonderful sort of visual cinematic metaphor to his whole uh, journey around his whole personal journey uh, around organized religion. And uh, I I'm delighted by the performances, and uh, I think the uh, I, I think the whole thing just works for me. Yeah, it's a really interesting film. It's it's one of those films that I feel is like I really enjoyed the film and what they did with it. I don't know if it's a film I liked per se. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of that weird balance where I felt like, wow, this was a really fascinating film. I really liked what happened in here. I liked the way he put it together. I liked the way that he, um, kind of has this subversive look at all of this sort of stuff. It's not a film I feel like I would return to often, but I still feel like this is a filmmaker who, knows how to um, knows how to put an interesting project together that uses a lot of really interesting um, 
uh, montage. He uses a lot of interesting imagery throughout. And I, and I think what I enjoyed so much about seeing this is he is a filmmaker who kind of came from the surrealist school. Uh, you know, he, he, you know, in his early career, he was definitely in the surrealist circles with Dali and, and, uh, all of those folks. And, I think what this showed me is that he was able to kind of take a lot of the elements that he learned in his uh, dealings with surrealism and put them in a narrative project. So you still get surrealist elements going on through the film, but they end up playing as a as a brilliant part of the narrative and as a, as a great way to just kind of emphasize certain things. I well, love talk, them. A, talk about some of those surrealist elements. What are, yeah. what's jumping out at you? Well, the thing that I enjoy is that he, it's like he takes things that happen in the real world and, and kind of makes them kind of become surrealist, um, bits, you know, like the, uh, just a, a small thing is like I, the, the way that, um, uh, Jorge, when we see uh, Viridiana's cousin Jorge, when he's out on the on the land and he sees the carriage ro- uh, go by and it's got the dog tied under it, this exhausted dog, and he um, feels so bad for this dog and he offers to buy it from the the guy who owns the carriage and so he buys the dog from it and he he takes the dog and then without noticing that as another carriage goes by, they also have a dog tied to the bottom and he just doesn't even notice that dog. And it's just, it's, it's a nice little bit of subtext about how, you know, just when you think you've kind of done something good, you're not going to necessarily notice, you know, more of the same happening. And it's a great little way to kind of throw this little, this little symbolic thing in there that, that just feels kind of just a, a, you know, it's like a weird little thing to kind of add to the film. It doesn't really enhance the story in any particular way, but it's a, it's a nice way to kind of just show something that's just, it's, it's kind of a weird little quirk that he kind of uses to, uh, to just give us a point about something. How is it surreal? I, it, it's one of those things that I felt was surreal in a way where it's like, it doesn't necessarily feel like it's, it's, uh, real in in context of like the film like it doesn't feel like it needed to be there in any way it feels like it's something that he added in there to just kind of emphasize a a strange element of characters and it's like he's using this as something outside of reality to to tell us something about um about these people and and about the audience and, and how people see things yeah i think that's the that's the challenge i i agree with you i think i can i can i certainly understand that your perspective i i think what is you know Part of my challenge is that when I uh, when I think about surrealist cinema, I I generally am am thinking about you know the sort of use of really shocking imagery and juxtapositions of shocking imagery over um, the mundane and uh, you know making those connections in a in a much more sort of visually uh, I'll say sort of blunt instrument kind of obvious way, and I think the subtlety of that dog and the message of um, Hey, do-gooder, you know, uh, you are, um, you can, you can try your best to be good, but the world moves on around you and you can never catch up. Mm-hmm. Um, it, to me, it's, it is a, you're, I think it's a great metaphor for certainly what our, what our main character, Verdiana is going through and her sort of fall from grace, uh, and, and her overall narrative, I think really, um, 
it mirrors that little tiny experience of the dog. I thought that was a, a very sort of touching and sad uh, parallel. Uh, I just hadn't seen it as as particularly a, a surrealist. Um, yeah, and montage. you know, surrealist, symbolic. Yeah. I, you know, I guess, I guess, I, I, I kind of see it in the surrealist bent. I don't see it as surreal as uh, Unshen Andalou. You know, slicing eyeballs and and strange um, intercutting to kind of uh, use montage yeah. to highlight things and make you kind of put put different images together that kind of make you think things. It, I, I don't see it necessarily in that way, but I, it's it's almost more of a kind of a mental surrealism that I see. You know, it's not you know. It's not a melting clock or anything, but it is something that it's he added that element to the film that it's it's not it's just it's a symbolic element that is just strange enough that it's like it's it's there for only one reason. And it, to me, it's it's to kind of step outside of the reality of the story and just kind of to speak a little bit to it. So let's speak a little bit of the reality of the story, can we, about what what is going on with Viridiana, the the. Um the woman and, yeah, and her story in the film. Yeah. She's an interesting character. Um, she's a, a nun who's about to take her vows. So I don't know if you call her a nun yet. She's a pre nun. Well, no, she's a nunlet. Nunlet. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the, that's the ecclesiastical term, the appropriate you term of so? art. Yeah. It's a term of art. <laughs> so she's, she's about to take her vows, but she gets, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the mother superior gets a letter from her uncle who has been funding all of her uh, uh, all of her time at the school and uh, kind of uh, as her as her benefactor and he's getting sick and uh, would love to have her visit before she takes her vows and she doesn't want to because she doesn't really know her uncle she's appreciative that he's done all this for her but at the same time it's like you know he's he's this mystery guy he's never been in my life except for this element and i just don't feel i know him mother superior kind of orders her to go and so she goes reluctantly and and ends up uh with an uncle that is really creepy and pathetic um this yeah. guy yeah more yeah. the latter <laughs> yeah it's but it's it's so weird I mean, fernando ray plays the uncle we've talked about him in uh, french connection yeah. it was it was great actually seeing him in in uh in something else and um it's so funny because in french connection i don't think i ever i don't even know if we talked about this when we did that show um the fact that he's actually a spanish actor i can't remember if we i brought don't think that we up. did no we didn't talk about that very interesting but yeah he um he finds that Viridiana, now all grown up, looks strikingly identical to his deceased wife who died on their deathbed. Uh, I mean, on she she died um, in bed on her wedding night. And um, that's and an interesting kinda, slip you just made there. Yeah, I, let's just. Yeah. I don't want to call too much attention to it, but <laughs> your wedding night bed you also refer to as your deathbed. Death let's bed, just right. make sure that that's out there. <laughs> Yeah, very kind of freaky. Um, <laughs> and why is it the deathbed on the wedding night? Very strange little element that he never really goes yes. into, but it is interesting. Um, she uh, looks so much like his deceased wife that he pretty much falls in love with Viridiana and uh, doesn't want her to leave. And he actually asks her to model his uh, deceased wife's wedding gown and then he drugs her and plans to uh, rape her so that she won't be able to return to the to the life with the nuns and um 
and, and then he kind of, you know, his better judgment gets the best of him. He doesn't end up raping her. He just kind of just touches her and kisses her in a few awkward ways. And then uh, he lets her go only to um, hang himself and leave a note giving her and his illegitimate son to another woman um, basically the run of the house. And so then the the latter half of the film is is her, Viridiana, as she she decides she doesn't want to be a nun after all, but she still wants to do good. So she takes in all of these paupers, and it's quite a group of characters. Um, she takes them in to kind of help them and give them a better life and have them help at the house and all that. And her cousin, Jorge, who uh, he's trying to figure out what she's doing, but doesn't seem to have too much of a problem with it. In, instead, he wants to kind of uh, take care of the land and everything. Meantime, he kind of falls for Viridiana. And uh, then there's this, uh, they leave one night, there's this massive, uh, you know, debauchery, uh, dinner of debauchery held by these poppers in the house, which is definitely something we're going to have to talk about. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Viridiana is distraught by the fact that these poor people that she's been trying to help really just reveal the fact that they are what they are. And she, uh, lost and broken, ends up kind of succumbing to her cousin in and uh, giving herself in to the realities of the world. It's a it's a very interesting film. It is a story of a fall from grace. I we got to start go back uh, rewind a little bit to to talk about the uncle. I you know it's interesting that you I, I think um, uh, that you characterize his shift as a uh, as an introduction of better judgment. That is not how I saw it at all. Um, to me, the way he portrayed it, I think Ray's performance was actually quite good and demonstrating for me what was uh, ultimately uh, a guy who whose deepest intention was to do something horrible, right? His intention was to rape her so that she would have to fall from grace. She would not be able to go back to the nunnery and she would have to stay with him and be her, um, and be his, his wife because she would be, she would be, you know, sullied. Uh, but when he, he drugs her, uh, with his complicit servant, he drugs her and then attempts to follow through on his dark desires he shows up as sort of uh, impotent, right? He is emotionally impotent. He can't actually follow through with what he was going to do, and so he carries it on as a lie. But I think that that impotence, that sort of character impotence, is what drives him to kill himself, right? And I think that's the interesting thing to me about that character. It's that, um, you know, he attempted to do something to follow through on himself, but he was too weak to do it. Uh, and and couldn't live with himself and couldn't live with his own uh, sort of inner demons. And I thought that was really interesting, and I think he portrayed it just right for me in that context. Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I don't think it's it's necessarily a thing where he's kind of holding out against his better judgment, like I, I said. I mean, I think there's a little bit of that in there. But even when he's uh, writing his suicide note, he has that glint of a smile yes. as he's doing it, as if... There's something malicious that he's planning, like kind of this this wicked plan that he's putting together of somehow I'm going to get her back um, through my son. And and I, obviously he couldn't have foreseen what was going to happen, but there it does feel like there's some sort of strange plan that he is hoping will fall into place by writing this note 
and then killing himself. And that's so interesting, too, right? Here's this guy who is, you know, he's a recluse now. He's, he talks about his house. He says the house is, um, you know, the house is pretty much a wreck. You know, everything, with the exception of the first floor, is overrun with spiders, um, which is really awful. I, I've been thinking a lot about just that a little, little bit. Um, and, and so he's a, he, he, is, uh, he is alone. He's a lone, lonely man. And, and to me, he's a guy who demonstrates that we, that, you know, this is why we can't have good things because what he sees in Viridiana is this image of perfection and perfection comes in sort of beauty. It comes in just sort of that, the, the package of what he sees, uh, it comes in her personality and it comes in her chosen field of study. And he have, having been somebody who I think has already fallen from his own grace at the death of his wife, uh, he is now to the point where he doesn't, he, he can't see anyone else be that good and and this is his effort to destroy what is good and the the contrast or i think the conflict of presenting this character as the the noble patron initially but balanced against you know how he behaves makes him a, a really interesting character to me and i was a little bit disappointed that we lose him uh, so early in the film yeah yeah definitely so um, and it is interesting how, through his death, he does end up creating this guilt in her, which drives her to leave the nunnery. Um, it's, it's this guilt created by his suicide, as if she feels guilty that he killed himself, even though she's not uh, complicit in this this rape that uh, he initially said that he did, and then he you know admitted the truth. I didn't really rape you. I was going to, but I didn't. But it's it's like... Even though she's like Viridiana feels guilty about this, the fact that he killed himself for her, right. even though she also says, I don't feel guilty at all. It's, it's, it's this strange uh, juxtaposition of emotions that she ends up uh, finding from this whole thing that I think begins her, uh, her battle of trying to figure out how to do good. And I, but I think that she's so naive that I don't think that she fully understands it, you know? Yeah, and and that exactly uh, that exact point, you know, as the authorities come to the bus stop and prevent her from leaving. And if you think about that, like, had he not hung himself, she would be gone. She would be back to the nunnery, and that shame likely would not have kicked in, right? You, you yeah. know, you sort of think out into the this other narrative future. Uh, you know, uh, things would have gone back to normal. She would have sort of prayed her way out of it. And uh, here just having her stay in that context, the sort of physical context of the compound uh, and the emotional context of the, the sort of recoiling from the fact that he had hung herself or hung himself and gifted everything that he had to her and this illegitimate son of his. Um, I think, I think you're right. It just, it cements her to a path that, that she cannot get off of. Um, and she tries to create her own, uh, her own sort of vision of service, and that's what she she I think wants to do with this compound is create a home for those who are in need. Yeah, and right. She, right. She's she's turning it into into her own shelter um, to try to make good on the fact that she's feeling that shame. She's ex- living in that shame, and and I I think it becomes her method of penance. And and the symbols of penance are are plenty in this film, uh, from the thorny crown that she carries in her in her suitcase. Um, 
you know, even ironically to the, the, the switchblade hidden in the crucifix, um, you right. know, these, the sort of images of religious sim- symbols associated with things that give pain, I think are, are, you know, a plenty, um, and, uh, and, and so, yeah, like the dog, she brings in all of these, she goes and she finds the paupers and they're paupers of many different ilk. You know, they're, some are blind, some are handicapped in other ways, some are diseased. You know, there's this controversy around one of them, whether or not they're lepers or he's a leper, um, uh, brought into the compound. And she is, is trying on what it feels like to wear sort of the, the cloth of the savior. And it's interesting how she is, is really only looking at, the good that she can, uh, she, I guess you could say she wants to see in these people. Um, even though time and time again, they really just prove themselves as, you know, they are who they are and perhaps they're just playing along with her so that they can kind of get the benefit of a benefactress who's going to just kind of feed them and take care of them. Even if, um, you know, she does kind of say, well, you know, we're all going to work. And, you know, one of them is we see painting, We see some people gardening and cooking, and and so they kind of take some things on. But in reality, they are who they are. You know, they all still constantly are forcing the... the guy who's potentially leprous forcing him out and, you know, tying a can around his leg so they know when he's coming and just always, always uh, being mean to him. I love the, the, the relationship between the woman who has two children and the pregnant woman and how uh, much um, seeming just disgust and annoyance the pregnant woman finds in the children. (laughs) It's just like, it's very telling that particular relationship. Um, And uh, the blind guy has the relationship with the woman who has the two kids, but then that other guy ends up kind of raping her, which sets a whole thing off. It's, it's, it is this this group of people who they are just kind of down and dirty, uh, you know, rough poppers, and this is who they are, and they don't change, even though she really is trying to find the good in them and working to make them change. Um, it and it clearly doesn't work, it, even though it does when she's around. It's that's it's this, right. Yeah, it's this facade that they kind of put on for her, which and I which I think is really interesting. I think the unraveling of that facade is paced really well in the film, too, right? Because it starts with the first dinner when they're all together and eating, and she brings them all back. She's introducing some new people to the group, and, and they're all great. She says, there's going to be work tomorrow. I can't wait, each according to his ability. Uh, and um, and everybody is very positive and enthusiastic and exciting and excited. And then she goes to bed, and they kick the leper out. Right. They they right. rally against him. And it turns out the superficiality of their um, their sort of uh, desire to take on her charity uh, is unveiled to us. And I think it's it's done in a really uh, sort of fascinating uh, and and uh, kind of well-paced way. So we already see that these guys are just wolves. You know, they're just, you know, they're dingoes. And, uh, and they, they, um, they protect their own. They don't, they're not, they don't like newcomers and they're in it for, for whatever it is that is going to, to make their lives better. And when you compare the message we get from the paupers that you can't change who they are, they are at their core. And you apply that to Viridiana that maybe, uh, her, uh, you know, her journey to the church was the facade all along. Uh, I think makes for one of the more interesting kind of puzzles in the film. Well, and it's it's it is a very interesting way to end the film, and it's certainly um, 
does speak to kind of the 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 dark journey that Viridiana ends up taking, where she basically, you know, Jorge, who kind of did admit his mistress left and and he's kind of fallen for Viridiana and uh, Viridiana at the end. Oh, while we also see that Jorge also has a thing for uh, Ramona, the uh, the servant. Um, and he seems see, to have a thing for everybody, really. Yeah, pretty much any woman that yeah. kind of comes into his circle, he's but, kind of got something for. And, and as such, he's really the only character that exists in his own sort of integrity throughout the entire film. <laughs> well, and, and the all the poppers, I would say. Well, yeah, that's well. No, they don't because they have a facade whenever <laughs> that's they're true, around they do. her. He that's does, true. Jorge never really puts on a facade. He is who he is all the way through the film. You're right. You're right. He, um, yeah, so we've got this fascinating ending where Jorge and Ramona uh, seems like they're going to have something starting in the bedroom when Viridiana knocks and, uh, and comes in. And this is after she's been essentially uh, has had her world destroyed by the realities of what uh, the poppers tried to do. Not, well, not just destroying the house as they had this, this, um, this uh, bacchanalist, uh, bacchanalish, I don't know if I can say that, uh, <laughs> <Wow>. feast, <laughs> the Last Supper. Yeah. Um, which was awesome. Which was awesome. The, that, the freeze frame of all of them on, the, you know, doing the, the sort of the montage or the, the of the da Vinci's Last, Supper. Last Supper. Da Vinci's Last Supper was really cool uh, and really funny. Although I would add, and then I'll let you re- get back to it. This was the only thing, part of the film, this the, the Bakken feast uh-huh. uh, was the only part of the film that I think didn't hold up. It was, it was pretty dated. Interesting. Now you. Interesting. Um. But then it, it it devolves as they come home, and as two of these um, guys, rabble rousers, um, try to well, first they knock out Jorge and tie him up, and then they grab Rudiana and and try to rape her. Um, they're only stopped because Jorge um, comes out of uh, wakes up after having been knocked out and convinces one of them the uh, the I'm not I guess he's kind of the leper. Mm-hmm. El leproso. Um, they he convinces him to kill the other guy as he's as he's trying to rape Viridiana um, in exchange for money. And you know because of the money, this guy is willing to uh, do that. And he takes the the uh, little shovel. What do you call those shovels for your Isn't fireplace? Like an and iron. That's the that's is the that metal. A... That's the poker thing, right? That's the poker. I don't know what the yeah. shovel is. I guess I always little... called it a wee shovel. It's the wee shovel. <laughs> <laughs> you take the wee shovel and hit the other guy over the head repeatedly until <laughs> until he's dead. And uh, yeah, and But through all that, I guess my point is, Viridiana has been changed and scarred and has seen this perfect world that she's been trying to set up destroyed. She has seen the other dog that she's not able to save, essentially. And gives herself in to her cousin's uh, desires, and with a very interesting change in the script that uh, that uh, Buñuel had to make due to the Spanish censors. Initially, it was going to be her coming into Jorge's room and closing the door, and basically saying, you know, she succumbs to his desires and he takes her. Um, instead, he has her come into the room where uh, Ramona is already there and uh, says, oh, we we're just playing some cards. And then you've got that that just crazy last line. You know, I always knew, I can't remember exactly what it is, but... Um, I always knew we would sh- we would shuffle the deck together or shuffle cards together. I don't know how the how it translates. 
Right, exactly. Uh, which is, uh, yeah, um, yeah. My cousin and I will end up shuffling the shuffling the deck together. Yeah, yeah. It's um, a great little uh, way to say, you know, I knew that we would end up sleeping together, and not only that, but saying it with another woman there, implying a kind of a menage a trois. Which is, yeah, as the camera beautifully pulls out so slowly from the table down the hallway, uh, you know, into the room, it's it's really suggestive. While we listen to Shimmy Doll, yes, <laughs> like a, like a, an old pop song, it was so it was such a, a strange, funny way to end the film that said so much. And what was the original? Because that was the the suggested ending. What was the original ending of the film? Well, it, it was her going into the room, mm-hmm. and um, and and he's by himself, and we see her slowly close the door on us, implying that you know she's going to him, and they're going to uh, basically have sex, and she's she's kind of hit that point of corruption. So instead, he made it a card game, <laughs> but through the implications of the dialogue, basically created a much more lascivious ending. I think. That's right. It was suggestive. So mm-hmm. the Spanish film board said, "No, that's that's suggestive. We need you to make it more suggestive." This <laughs> is a this is a banner event in the development of uh, Spanish film uh, history. It's it's pretty it's pretty comical the way that they that he kind of <laughs> ended up uh, you know going about this. But you know it says so much about this this downfall of her, and it, it says so much of this step that she's taking, uh, like you were saying, of her going to kind of where she was going to be all along, which was basically just being kind of another another woman in the lives of men, and whether she ends up somebody who's going to have babies or what. It's like she she becomes kind of the the just another another woman and it's 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 a very interesting kind of painful portrayal but coming through Buñuel it it does have a very biting way about it does it end up it, it sounds like for the way you're talking about it, it doesn't end optimistically to you I don't think so I don't think it ends well it's tricky I mean is it optimistic um it, you know if she's ending up in a place that she may have been uh heading all along is that optimism or is that um does it end up being pessimistic because she had higher ambitions it's just those were destroyed um yet she does end where she probably was going to be all along so I don't know if that's optimism or pe- pessimism or or just you know realism well, and that, that that may be it. I, I, to me, as as the film ended, the thing that I found myself sort of gratified about is that, you know, and I, I think I'm watching again, paralleling Bunuel's journey, which is this, that that there is uh, that that in his view, organized religion is very destructive, and and it is. Um, you know, he he's not a fan. He was raised in in strict organized religion, and he fell from it. And for him, as I'm sort of looking at this through his eyes, that message is that sort of um, film to his world connection is she just she through all of these sort of darker things, she has been in some way rescued. Right. Yeah. So the fact that she goes in and there's a there's a, a strongly suggested um, sexual event about to occur uh, is maybe just another kind of piece of her physical awakening. But the fact is, she is she is on a path now that is authentic to her, the, where she was not before. And to me, that came off as strangely optimistic. Um, you know, when you when I look at it in that context, I think it's really ends up being kind of a powerful statement. But I. 
I can totally see how, you know, uh, if you look at this from a, a fall from grace, that where she was was doing the higher good, uh, and now she is now she is not able to do that. I I had never looked at it, you know, your words that she is another woman in the lives of men. I think that's a really strong way to put it from that perspective, and it's it it's much more painful when I look at it that way. Well, it is, and uh, you know, you know, it's it's it, it's tricky. And the thing I like about it is that there, it, it's not. Uh, he's not just feeding us the answer as to kind of what what really is happening here. Um, I think what he does so well is basically say, "Look, there is no real good or real evil. It's really what uh, you know. It, everybody is different shades of gray, and." The world is just shades of gray, and people who who deliberately try to be uh, so good that they are dismissing everything else are are creating their own facade because they're not admitting that that there are these evils out there. I mean, geez, we just talked about the trailer Spotlight earlier. Mm-hmm. That clearly talks about the world of religion here. And I think that um, Buñuel really tapped into that here and, and showed, you know, Viridiana was on this path of incredible good, but she doesn't end up there. It's, you know, people aren't that easy. It's not that simple. And uh, the uncle, I mean, he's, he's this, he has these terrible notions about what he wants to do with her and drugs her and and um but he does have this really oddly empathetic pathetic side about him that is a very interesting way to look at um you know the all of the characters really show that and i i find it really fascinating that he he takes that angle as he's kind of looking at all of this fascinating it is a fascinating film. What, do you want to talk about any of the uh, people beyond Fernando Rey, uh, Silvia Pinal? Yeah, as, Silvia Pinal. Uh, is, yeah, she's quite quite the uh, the person, and I uh, hadn't realized it. I just hadn't explored her career at all. But she is quite a uh, a leading lady of Mexico. She was really kind of became huge in the forties. And um, she was one of the Mexican movie stars of the golden era and uh, in lots of uh, lots of great films. She did, I think, three films uh, with uh, Buñuel. She did this, The Exterminating Angel and uh, Simone of the Desert. And uh, um, through her, <laughs> interestingly, through her different husbands, ended up kind of taking different directions in her career. Um, her second husband, Gustavo Alatriste, um, was uh, she was married to him at the time she started working for Buñuel. Um, her husband actually ended up producing some of these films and helping kind of get the financing for them. Um, she did TV. She did. Uh, she was in politics for a while, and um, she was a producer. She is a theater owner. Um, she, her, her daughters are kind of in the business. She's really kind of a uh, a force in Mexican cinema, which I find really really interesting. And if you look at her. Uh, now in today's age it's it's uh she clearly just looks like kind of one of those those older just wild and crazy kind of uh characters and uh very fun to kind of see this woman and somebody who's just you know i think she's uh really a great uh a great performer i mean she was really solid in this film i really liked what she brought to the screen 
I, I agree. I thought she was she was really terrific. It's fascinating to see just how active she still is today. Um, yeah, right. You know, on you know not just film but television and stage. Um, she's she's done a number of big performances uh, uh, in stage and as a stage producer. So uh, right, very active. She was great. Yeah, uh, we already talked about Fernando Ray. Francisco Rabal played uh, her cousin Jorge. Um, he is—he's um, quite the actor too. I mean, he had uh, quite a career. It seems like um, meeting Buñuel and and working with him is kind of a great start to his career, and that's really where he started um, getting out uh, into the world as far as a little more popularity and everything. Um, he was in—I mean, geez, his his credits—he's uh, got 216 credits to his name, so he's definitely been a very very busy boy um he did uh pass away in 2001 on a plane it sounds like he was uh, or he was traveling on a plane and it aggravated some bronchitis he had and it uh it ended up they couldn't help him after he got off the plane it ended up killing him very tragic but um but he was in a lot of uh, interesting films i had actually seen him in a few of his films one of them, the most recent that I had seen, was Goya in Bordeaux, which he had done in 99, uh, playing Goya, who actually played three times over the course of his career. So uh, kind of interesting. Um, but I, I, he was another guy. I just really liked his presence on the screen. I felt, um, I, I guess, much like what you were saying about his character, how he's really always um, who he says he is. He never puts up any facades. I really just felt that about him. He just was a solid character and really, uh, just kind of very straightforward. I liked him quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with you. And I, he's incredibly charismatic. Um, and, and part of that is the character he played in a, in a, in a film that is all about facade to have this one character who is not about facade, but you are, you're set up to think it's about facade. And it turns out he's the one who is, is just rock solid all the way through in spite of his flaws. Uh, I, I think he is, um, uh, I think the character allowed him to really shine as a charismatic sort of leading man type. I thought he was great. He was wonderful to watch. Margarita Lozano played uh, Ramona, the servant. Um, I don't have a whole lot to say about her, although I did like her in this quite a bit. I liked kind of the 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 way that she played it. But we had actually, she was in A Fistful of Dollars. We had seen her before. Well, yeah. Was she in Fistful of Dollars? We Did we not talk about her? I don't know. I, I, you know she was Consuelo Baxter. And honestly, I just can't remember Me neither. Um, how big of a part that was. I, I think Consuelo Baxter was the the wife of, gosh, the one the the one of the factions, the faction who lived on the, I want to say the north end of the town, although I have no no reason to call it the north end. I don't know why I'm calling <laughs> it the north end. I don't think they ever say. But I think she's she's the wife of the guy at the, at the like the rich guy at the end of the town, not, oh, the, okay. not the kind of more uh, raucous troublemaker guys at the other end of town, I think. So that was her. Julio Alejandro uh, co-wrote this with Luis Bunuel, and they had worked together a number of times. Um, Mexican writer who uh, has a pretty solid uh, writing career, um, 85 credits to his name. Um, and I believe that they uh, worked together a couple other times. So um, I, I think that the two of them worked well on creating this script and, and coming up with a solid story. I think it works really well. I'm surprised you don't like it as much as I do. I no, it's I, no, I like it. it. You said I did. I did. did. I I like it. I just I it's it's not something that I feel like I would return to. Is really kind of yeah. what I was implying. Yeah. All right. And uh, I think uh, Jose Ag Agayo 
the uh, cinematographer who shot this. I he's I was just gonna say he is a, uh, a quite a quite a prolific uh, Spanish cinematographer who who came on this uh, with uh, with Buñuel, um, and I liked the cinematography, but it um, there's a lot of sloppiness to yes. it. Yes, yes. Is that your comment? That was my comment. And I think that the innocence has spoiled me to intrigue in black and white. Interesting. This I, I kept wanting, like this was there there are so many elements of this film that felt like they should be darker, higher contrast, more, you know, just more engaging placement of the camera. And I, I kept coming back to the innocence and just how well that film works um visually. And I, I was I found myself disappointed. Well, I think a lot of that goes to uh, Bunuel. And what I read about Bunuel is um, I couldn't find anything budget related for this film. Nothing, not mm-hmm. a sausage. But I did find that Bunuel, early in his life, he was so conscious of, or he had to be so conscious of money, uh, whether it was just his, his life or his films or whatever. He, he was so conscious about money that he really, really did everything he could in all of his films to finish ahead of schedule for less money than um, than the than the, they had given him because he was so um, careful about uh, about that sort of thing in his life and what I read was that became his focus more so than making sure he got the shots perfectly making sure things were um, as planned in fact he would often be more inclined to to come in under schedule and under budget than to make sure he got all the coverage that he needed as long as he got something that was um kind of his filmmaking style and and he became kind of known for that so i think that ends up reflecting in the way that it ended up looking i think that uh, agayo ended up capturing the film the story that uh, Bunuel wanted to tell, but I think, and, and I don't know Agayo's work. I don't know if if he could have done better if it hadn't been for Bunuel. Um, but I think what ended up happening is it uh, Bunuel didn't have a problem with sloppiness as long as the story got told via via cinematic image. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I the the other bit that I read, I, I, this goes back to Lage d'Or, that you know his first feature, uh, that he built so much of that reputation on, um, you know, shooting that film in order, every sequence in order, and using nearly every foot of film that he shot, uh, because he wanted to make sure that you know he, as you say, that he came in on budget ahead of time and had no. Um, no practical sort of training in filmmaking. It was he. He was stumbling very much, kind of uh, self-taught and and relying on the on others to to kind of get him through this. And when he lost support of some of his key, um, you know, key supporters in in the filmmaking, the artistry of it, that it came back to him just sort of trying to figure it out on his own. And so I think yeah, I think that uh, that. Um, I, I think you're right, and it, it ends up, it, it's disappointing that he never sort of shook that, because I think it could have been a better film. It's interesting that when this film uh, was released, it, you know, it's, it's hard to say it even really had what you would call a release. This film, when they finished it, he, um, they, they, got to, they brought it over to Cannes to play there, like you had mentioned, um, and it wasn't even in the official lineup at Cannes. It wasn't in the competition, um, it, and it played in the very last day 
But because it uh, sent kind of, I guess you could say, such a shockwave through its audience, it ended up tying for uh, for best uh, film uh, at that at the 1961 Cannes Film Festival, which is uh, which said a lot. Um, and they said, oh, it's, you know, one of the best Spanish films and all this. And then, you know, Franco and all of the people involved in the in the Franco government in Spain at the time got wind of of the film and Franco tried to have it withdrawn he ordered that all of the elements and everything related to this film are were destroyed i guess that uh Sylvia actually took a, a she went back to, or she went to France, grabbed the copy. She took it out of her, or out of the spools, or something, and she basically um, she snuck it back to Mexico so that it was she, so that they had a copy of it. And other people had been like burying copies of the film and stuff, and and all of its elements um, on farms and whatever they could to kind of preserve it. And um, meanwhile, all the rest of it ended up getting destroyed under the Franco regime. And this film ended up, I mean, the the. Um, the official newspaper of the Vatican said it was blasphemous and all sorts of places like were basically shutting this film down. They would not show it. They banned it. Spain, it was ban- banned through the entire Franco regime until 1977. This film ended up kind of getting shown in back rooms and, um, you know, on walls. And it just it had that sort of underground life. So that's why I think that there really are no numbers for this, because I don't know if this is a film that actually profited. I don't know if this is a film that just that became famous because of what he was saying and it's not necessarily something that ever was even meant to be a blockbuster it was just it's it's a Buñuel film it's something where he's trying to say something putting some art out there and and letting people kind of take what they get from it without worrying about it being you know the next big blockbuster or something mm. Well, I I came away with it thinking just that it is a, I, I thought it was a fantastic statement of a of a bold and uh, a filmmaker, an opinionated filmmaker, and and I am, uh, boy, I am deeply gratified that this was the the recommendation. I'm really glad to be introduced to Bunuel with this film in particular, and it makes me want to go back and watch some more. Yeah, Diego had said that um, you know he kind of recommended before we do this we should watch. I think he gave us like another five or six films of, from Buñuel to watch. It's like, gosh, I, I hope I have time to watch any of them. I didn't have time to watch yeah. any of the others, but uh, it's it does make me curious to see more of his films now. You know, a lot more than I had been. So I'm definitely glad. I think Ebert said something about um, you know anyone who's serious about cinema ends up getting to Buñuel at some point because he's just one of those one of those filmmakers that is a uh, a serious filmmaker that that people who want to know more about the world of cinema and really study film they do end up kind of talking about at some point because yeah. he is an important filmmaker and I think it's interesting that Buñuel in his autobiography at the end of his life he actually said um which i think says a lot about him and the way that he sees the world he said he'd be happy to burn all of the prints of all of his films (laughs) (laughs) that's really interesting you know that actually makes me think not to dive too much back into the discussion of the film but it makes me reflect on the montage too uh there's a great montage where uh it's the work montage right where we have uh the sequence of her um working so hard to build up these paupers and to have them working and contributing and teaching and praying and and they're it's mostly praying at this point uh and it's intercut with um the jorge's workers who are uh, destroying parts of the house, right? And they're destroying parts of the house with the intention to renovate it, right? To clean it up, to build new pieces of it. And 
it's a fascinating thing because when you watch it the first time, if you, you know, at least my experience of it, as I watch it the first time, it looks so much like, you know, we have this one piece that is creation and one piece that is destruction. And that in itself is a, is a, a, a bold sort of visual statement. But once you get to the end of the movie and reflect on what that montage is really saying, it turns out it's the opposite, that everything she was doing was working toward destruction and everything he was doing was working toward creation. And uh, I thought that was just a fantastic story sort of visual twist, uh, a, a structural cinematic twist um, that that highlights for me the, the real uh, kind of power of Bunuel's filmmaking. As sort of clumsy and sloppy as it may be, uh, it, that ends up being a powerful uh, demonstration of, of message. I agree. I agree. All right. And, you know, we didn't even mention just a, a last little bit, um, Bunuel's apparent foot fetish. <laughs> Which we definitely uh, see brought to light here in this film a number of times. A number of times. It may be jumping rope feet. Yes, it may be. It may be uh, Fernando Ray trying on his uh, his deceased wife's shoes. Yes, and it may be him uh, looking at Viridiana's ankles. He does. He did love his feet. He rubbed his feet something good. Cleaned his feet. Lots Mm -hmm. of lots of foot stuff. So glad you brought that up. (laughs) That's a good way to end. We should probably rank it. (laughs) Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel and uh, do a little search for Viridiana and add it to your uh, list and then uh, rank it along with us. And let's just see where we end up. This will be an interesting one because it's it's going to be the balance of the quality of film with the likelihood of rewatching. I absolutely agree. I think we're going to come down to agreeing more than disagreeing on this one. Yes, we shall see. First up, Viridiana or the Bad Seed. Here I will say I Viridiana. Viridiana. Yeah, Viridiana. Yeah. Viridiana or Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Eternal Sunshine. Eternal Sunshine, indeed. Viridiana or Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. I'm with The Killing here. Yeah, me too. Viridiana or Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Sweeney, Haven't seen that one pop up Sweeney in a while. Sweeney Todd. Yeah, Sweeney Todd it is. Viridiana or ooh, or Chronicle? I think Viridiana for me. Here. This, yeah, see, Chronicle, I would definitely watch first. Yeah. I would definitely, definitely watch that first. But I do think there's a lot more interesting stuff going on in Viridiana. So I agree with you, Viridiana here. Viridiana or Adaptation? Adaptation. Adaptation, yep. Viridiana or The Lavender Hill Mob? I would do The Lavender Hill Mob, actually. Yeah, I think so. Viridiana? Or creep show, I am totally creep show on this one. <laughs> really, <laughs> it is. If if it was a bad movie, this would be a guilty pleasure. I just love that movie so much. <laughs> uh, I'm feeling generous. I will give it to you, but I think in my, uh, I think better <laughs> angels would step in if I'm ranking this alone, and it would be Viridiana for me. I think you may be right, but yeah, this is a. What can I say? <laughs> Well, Viridiana did crack our top 100. It is number 99 out of 212. I, that's a good place for it. I think it's a, I, again, I, I think that we will see Bunuel again in our uh, upcoming films. Maybe not upcoming too soon, but we're going to see them again because this is this has inspired me to want to talk about more of his work. Definitely. Yeah. If anything, I got out of this uh, a real fascination in what he is doing in film and in cinema. And it's definitely something that I do want to visit more of. So I think you're right. Let's uh, let's uh, figure that out on our schedule one of these days. Isn't it fascinating that as both of us, you, you know, as both of us were educated in college, in film, 
right. in the study of film or the creation of film. And we haven't done more where I feel like we're coming to Bunuel late in our cinematic career. Don't you a little bit? I do. Although, you know, I will say when we were in college, um, I feel like, you know, Criterion and, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to give too much uh, credence to Criterion's role in kind of expanding people's uh, minds on Luis Bunuel. But I will say they have helped kind of make some more of his films accessible. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know if if some of his uh, other features were as accessible when we were in college. I mean, I, that being said, most of the stuff that we were watching in college were still film prints. So it's likely that, you know, my film professors could have found film yeah, prints of his right. films to actually bring into class. Yeah, that's the that's the piece that that is a little bit frustrating to me that I feel like gosh, I where I I would love to have been talking about Boonwell and I feel like now that we have uh it it adds a new dimension um to sort of the vernacular that we can use to talk about films. So I'm I love it. Where do, we, where do we go from here? This was our listener's choice. And I should say again, thank you so much, Diego. As much as we uh, enjoy in doing this show because we love introducing films to people who have not seen them, um, you know, it's, it's kind of one of the core tenets of this show. It is equally gratifying when we do films that neither of us have seen and get to have new films introduced to us. So thank you so much for, for doing this. And, and it's why we do this great listener's choice thing. Um, so this was, this was a real win. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Big thanks uh, for coming up with this one. And, you know, uh, like I said in the beginning, it would be great if there were ways for us to get access to more of those uh, those other sorts of films out there. But it is what it is. We've got to take what we can get. So, um, you know, I'm just appreciative that we were able to uh, to see these ones. We're doing something that is uh, what would you you'd call it a tonal shift? (laughs) <laughs> this is a definite tonal <laughs> shift. Yes, completely in the different direction. We are actually going to be uh, stepping into the world of Harold Ramis, um, who we lost. Uh, was it last year that Harold Ramis passed away? I think so. Yeah, I think it was. Um, tragically, yes, he did pass away. And uh, and I don't know if that's particularly why we wanted to talk about Harold Ramis or we just wanted to kind of jump in on some of his films. Um, we're kind of looking at him as a uh, the, the writer and director side of him we're going to be talking about uh ivan reitman's film uh stripes and we're going to be talking about uh that's one that uh, harold ramus wrote and then caddyshack and national lampoon's vacation two films that uh, he did direct so it's going to be a uh a fun series we're actually starting with caddyshack then we'll do stripes and end on vacation and uh you know i i've never fully seen stripes so i'm looking forward to seeing that i can't Caddy- believe that i know it's it's just crazy i don't know but uh caddyshack and vacation are films that i i certainly have enjoyed um and i think we were talking about harold ramus and these three particular films and we're we're curious to see how they end up holding up now that it's been a while since uh, we've kind of hit them the 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 problem with with talking about those films is that they're they are so dependent on context. And we're mm-hmm. going to talk a lot about this, I think, in the coming weeks. But, you know, I have never watched any of these movies, movies that I have enjoyed. I've never watched any of them with the intent to be critical of them. Right. And that makes me super nervous. Well, yeah, that, that can be something that uh, we'll have to yeah. address as we start looking at them and see, right. see how they hold up, whether it's something he wrote or uh, wrote and directed or just directed. Yeah. All right. Well... We're off. Yes, indeed. Until then, Andy, I gotta go to bed. All right. I gotta go stare at some feet for a little while.
All right, well, I've got a two-star by Thomas Aquinas. Did Buñuel know any poor people? This movie draws you in, there's no doubt about it, but you soon sense that something is wrong, and what that is is both a sense of impending and overwhelming evil and a gross caricature of the poor. Apparently, Buñuel imagined himself as a realist in assessing human nature as essentially corrupt and irreformable, but this is simply not true, as anyone who has worked with the poor and suffering can tell you. Yes, the lives of the suffering can be turned around with charity, especially charity informed by faith in Christ. I've seen it myself many times. So one has to ask, did Buñuel ever try helping others, or is this movie just one long excuse for his his own failure to love his neighbor as himself. The deconstructor should not be above deconstruction, and his psychological motivation for producing this film should be subject to scrutiny by his own method for analyzing human behavior. Regardless of his clumsy attempt to deride religion and virtue, the main character, Rudiana, comes across as a heroic woman, and the anti-hero comes across as an amoral lout, so much so that most people will sympathize with Rudiana and religion. For this reason, the movie merits a couple of stars. The movie also has value for its place in the history of cinema and modernist thought and as a warning against the latter it's an interesting review i don't know if i completely agree with it but but i do think that at least this person is kind of at least thinking about it and they're they're kind of you know coming up with some interesting uh interesting thoughts but that being said you know i don't think that viridiana ends up coming across as a heroic woman i think this is a person who ends up kind of painting a little bit of their own religious perspective on on the film yeah, and I think that's where my reviewer comes in uh, too. This is a one star, and um, you know I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's it's lengthy. Um, but here, this sort of sums it up: uh, bad movies are made with the intent to defile. Viridiana is the story of the defilement of a nun. With Viridiana, one has the distinct impression that Bunuel looks with favor upon the idea that the nun, Miss Viridiana, is defiled. Further, that other nuns ought to be defiled, and probably that the whole process should be applied to the audience as well. So his intent, as it seems to me, is to defile the audience. This is a bad movie, the holotype of a bad movie. And then the reviewer goes on to talk about how we need a a second star rating for just bad and ugly movies, and there's there's something of a diatribe there. But what's more interesting is the the litany of commentary on that particular review, which sometimes we dig into and sometimes we don't. Uh, things like, reviewers like Irish Eyes should have the wit to stay away from films like this. People with axes to grind, especially those afflicted with religious hysteria, never make trustworthy reviewers. Or, your vague ideas about a film critique are littered with the obvious disdain for Brunwell's film. The referencing sources you quote are disjointed, with the exception of two or three half-hearted sentences about the film. Your entire review is nothing but filler for for a sad venting about how you see society and that a film like this would never be a part of the perfection you would want to create. Should we hang the pilgrims for coming to this country over 400 years ago and starting the genocide of the American Indian just because your word, in your word it would be bad? Your review and you, sir, are bad. Bad for Amazon, bad for critics, and bad for anyone who tries to decipher whatever it is you were trying to say. Oh, wow. Yeah, quite the review of the review. There, it was a review of the review, and and uh, but I think it's fascinating that this film, uh, you know, as as we talked about, it was banned for as long as it was. That it it inspired such, uh, you know, uh, acrimony in in those who watch it, and and uh, you know, it it says that much more. I think for the strong statement that Brunwell was trying to make, uh, and and apparently succeeded in making. Absolutely. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. 
In that time, I have tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs> 